Acts chapter 25. We're getting very close to concluding Acts and uh, been praying about what to bring uh, next. And Acts chapter 25. We'll start in verse 1 and we're going to read to verse 27. Hopefully we get to all 27 verses tonight. But a lot of this is going to be narrative. But there will be, there will be a few points that we want to kind of draw out of the word here. Acts chapter 25, verse 1. Now when Festus was come into the province, after three days he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me, and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down into Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought in. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. But Festus, when they did the Jews a favor, or a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things where these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar shalt thou go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came from Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him, to whom I answered, It is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die, before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face, and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth, against whom when the accusers stood up, they brought none accusations of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own superstition and of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I doubted of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to, the, to be reserved into the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp, and was entered into the palace of hearing, with the chief captains and principal men of the city, 
at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the, cra- the crimes laid against him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace to us and the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the hope of the promise that we have. Father, as we assemble here the night in your name, we just pray, Lord, you'll bless your word and that you apply it through your Holy Spirit to our hearts. We give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So, What we see here, if we come back, and we'll look at these, um, hopefully again we'll get through all 27 verses, but if you remember up until this point, this is going to be Paul's third trial. Now it's been two years, there's a two year gap between chapter 24 and chapter 25. Now if you remember uh, back in chapter 23 and 24, 25, you know, and those chapters that Paul had been falsely accused, and he was accused of three things. He was accused of sacrilege of the temple. He was accused of sedition, which was a law against Rome. And then he was accused against sectarianism, which is the law of the Jews, that he was anti-circumcision, anti-Moses, and all these things. But just like the first two trials, you know, if you remember, the, the first trial we saw was in front of Lysias and, and the, the, the council, the, and the, the organized Sanhedrin at the time. And then in the second trial was, a, was before Felix. Lysias said, you know, Lysias uh, uncovered this plot to kill Paul. And so out of safety that Lysias had sent Paul with a letter to Caesarea with an armed guard, and in front of Felix, Paul was tried a second time. And now we see that even though Felix had all this information, he sat on it. He didn't do anything. He didn't want to upset the Jews by letting Paul go because there was no evidence against Paul. Nor did he want to uh, uh, kill Paul because there was nothing that Paul had done worthy of death. So we see a plot to kill Paul. We, we saw that uh, he was sent to Felix again with no verdict. But now here's the situation Paul's in after these two years. Uh, just think about Paul's situation. Now, you could say Paul was in a predicament, but we know better than that. We, we know that it's the providence of God. God had Paul right where he wanted Paul to be. So he was a bit, you know, he... His own countrymen, being a Jew, they all wanted to kill him. And being a Roman citizen, his government didn't know what to do with him. So he's kind of stuck in this situation. Now, here comes, you know, Felix, we saw throughout history, Felix was incompetent. 
He was not a good governor. He had done a lot of things that had upset the Jews. And so uh, Nero fires him, brings him back up to Rome, and replaces him with a new governor named Festus. And that's where we are in verse 1. Now, Festus is brand new. Now, Josephus and other historians have written about Festus that he was much more competent. He, he was an able governor. He took his job seriously and all of the things that uh, partook of the, the being a governor. Now, obviously, he didn't know anything about Christianity. He didn't know anything about Judaism. He didn't know anything about that. He knew how to be a Roman governor. And so here he is in verse 1. As, I mean, he, he hits the ground running. As soon as he comes into the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, J Jerusalem is south of Caesarea, but we know that many times when you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. No matter which direction you're coming from, you're going up. And when you're leaving Jerusalem to go somewhere, you're going down. <laughs> so uh, Caesarea is north of Jerusalem, but we see that, Fe that Festus, after three days, he immediately goes to Jerusalem. Now, why do you do that? This is kind of the, the official convoy. This is, this is a state, diplom uh, like a diplomatic mission that Festus is on. Another thing we need to keep in our minds, this is around 59 AD, and in six or seven short years, there's going to be the Jewish, Jewish revolt against Rome. So it's not going to take much to spark a fire. So the Jews are being, you know, the, we saw the zealots. Uh, who, there's probably a riot every day or a, a protest every day. And, and so they have to be very tender with the Jews, how they treat the Jews. And uh, that's what we saw with Felix was fired because he was, not, he was being cruel. And so Festus is coming in a little bit more on the, the diplomacy side. And we see that in verse 2, then the high priest, then we know him to be Ananias, and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. And then in verse 5, he says, Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able, go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. Now, one of the things that we do not know for sure about Festus, or at least it's not brought up, and we would have assumed, had he known that they tried to kill Paul, had, they, had he known that there was a plot to kill Paul and that he was rescued by Lysias twice out of, Paul, out of, the, out of the Jews' clutches, and then I, I believe that he would have addressed this situation a little bit different as we continue to read. But isn't it interesting that there is no reason that Festus says, no, no, you know, I'm not going to bring Paul down to you. And look at that. After two years, after two years, the Jews still could not let this go. In verse 2, they besought Festus to bring Paul in verse 3 at the end of it they were going to lie and wait in the way to kill him just like they had plotted two years ago uh, look over at chapter 23 
I got kind of a little bit of a chuckle of this. Uh, do you remember the vow that these 40 Jews took? Look at chapter 23, verse 12. And he says, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. <laughs> it's been two years later. Two years later. And I'm just thinking, these guys, uh, and they bound themselves under this curse, and that curse is an, anathematized. You all have heard being anathema. Let them be a curse. What that means is let them have the wrath of God. They are, they are asking for the wrath of God if they do not complete this vow. Neither would they eat or drink. And here it is two years later, and the Jews still have not let this go. Now, if you all remember, the plot was discovered. I mean, it, the providence of God all throughout here is seen. The plot was discovered by Paul's nephew, which we don't know anything about Paul's family except for the very little things that we're told. And then the nephew goes to Lysias and tells him about, and goes to Paul, and then the, the plot to kill him is un, uh, uncovered. Now there's four things that I want us to look at through this narrative. Now it, a lot of this is going to be us reading just kind of a historical account what happens to Paul. But, but we can glean some things from the word of God here. Notice that any, any religion that is non-Christian have an opinion about Jesus. They have an open opinion or they have a subtle opinion, but they all reject Jesus. If it's not one of the Lord's churches, if you're not a safe person and you are religious and you are in a religion, you're going to have an opinion about him. And whether you're, you're openly opposed or you're subtly opposed, these men were opposed to Jesus. What did uh, Jesus say? Matthew 12, 30. He says, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now think about that. You know, I, I loved meditating on that verse. He that is not with me is against me. Well, we get that. But he that gathereth not with me, if you're not doing the work with him, you're actually making the work worse. You're scattering abroad. Isn't that something? And we see that. I mean, just in the, a few short words, that's just in a profound statement. That if you are a church in error, you're making things worse. You're, I mean, there's no being neutral with Jesus Christ. And so if you're not gathering with him, then you're doing the opposite. You're making things worse. Uh, persecution against Christians are always, always based on false accusations or in the name of religion, all throughout time. Uh, it's based on false accusations or in the name of religion. Now, we as Christians, how are we to handle that? As God's people, how are we to handle false accusations? In 1 Peter 2.15, this was also a good one to meditate on. He says, for so is the will of God. A lot of people say, well, what's the will of God for my life? God gives you his will in a lot of places in the word of God. And here is one of them. For so is the will of God 
that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Isn't that something? That, that's that whole return evil of good. But when they're falsely accusing you, just like they did Paul, that it is God's will for you, for all of us, that with well-doing, this is how you silence them. And that's what we see. And, but throughout time, we see that the church, God's people, have been persecuted, uh, whether it was false religion or in the name of religion, uh, in the name of Christ, Judaism and paganism, that we know it to here at the beginning was widespread. Uh, they killed John the Baptist, was beheaded. Jesus was crucified. Stephen was stoned. Matthew was slain in Ethiopia. Mark was dragged through the streets until dead. James was beheaded. Philip was crucified and stoned. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Thomas was pierced with lances. James Aless was thrown from the temple and then beaten to death. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned to death. And Paul was beheaded. There's many more. Now, worse then that body count was the 50 million Christians that were killed in the Dark Ages. Those 1,200 years, um, I don't know how many of you all have read The Trail of Blood. I highly, highly recommend reading The Trail of Blood. Highly. I mean, it put a lot of things into perspective for me that I wasn't even aware uh, that was going on. And so if you don't have a copy of it, you come see me and we'll, we'll get you a copy of it. And uh, I highly, highly recommend reading the, the Trail of Blood. Fifty million Christians died between 426 A.D. to 1200. And if you look at the history, it was over the rejection of two main doctrines against the Roman Catholic Church, infant baptism and baptismal regeneration. Those were the two main doctrines that they stood for against. Now, once the church married the state, then it became a law to have all your babies baptized. If you have a baby, it's a law. And so it became compulsory. And then, you know, back then they didn't really celebrate their uh, punishment of humans uh, with human right laws. No, they, they celebrated finding ways of torturing people to the brink of death but not killing them. That was their celebration. And so when the Christians refused, when God's people refused, and actually the Catholics took the word Christians, and they forbade, they forbidden the Lord's churches for even using the word Christian. We, you couldn't even use the word Christian. So we went by many different other names, the Paulicians, the Albigenians, the, and uh, the things like that. So uh, the Anabaptists. So the sword and the torch became the power of God unto salvation, not the gospel to the Roman Catholic Church. But the New Testament churches, the Lord's churches stood. Now again, as we read through here, you're going to see a commonality that persecution against the Lord's people have always either been false accusations or in the name of Christ or in the name of religion. Now here's the second 
lesson we see. Notice the power of hate. The power of hate. They could not let this go, that Paul was alive. Paul was out of circulation. Why did they even care? Paul was no longer being a pestilent fellow, right, amongst the earth. They hated him, and that hate just began to grow. It first began with just the Sadducees, because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the spirit or the afterlife, but now it's all of them. Now it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's all of the Jews who are in lying in wait and wanting to kill Paul in verse 3. Now I want us to, to really take a step back and, and take this topic seriously. Hate is a form of sin. You know, righteous anger is not festering hate. Righteous anger is being angry for the gospel's sake or being upset about something, but it doesn't fester. You know, you still love and you still pray for people and you want them to be saved. And um, so a righteous anger is not those things. It's for maybe a rebuke or correction in righteousness, for righteousness' sake. No child of God has the right to fester hate and bitterment because it's a sin. And how many do you know? And and it's so easy, especially if you start listening to the wrong radio. You start listening to, you know, I mean, some of that radio is, is not good for you. The talk radio, political talk radio. You just live in a state of being bitter, bitter against the liberals, bitter and hate against the liberals. And, and what it does, it's, and what did, what did God tell Jonah? Jonah, how's that hate treating you? How, how's that hate treat you? I mean, does it make you feel better when you walk around? I mean, do you feel good every day? Do you feel light? Do you feel free? Do you feel happy? Do you have joy? No, you have none of those things. Hate's taken over the heart. Now, here's the thing. Jesus said that whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. Now, what he means there is perpetual, that you are sold under sin, that you are someone whose mind is bent towards sin, who celebrates in sin. That's a perpetual sin. Of course, we know that when we sin, that we ask him to forgive us our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And don't you praise the Lord? The Lord's convicted you of sin, that you, you stop that and it goes no further. And not only are you preventing sinning against God, but that sin can wreak havoc in your life if it continues to grow. And so uh, Jesus said that whoever committed sin is a servant of sin, those who have given themselves up to it. Even Paul talks about this, that you are the servant to who you obey. Who you obey is your master. Peter said, of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. So we see just a festering hate by the Jews to want to kill Paul. And that hate, if you let it keep going and keep going, it'll dominate your life. You'll become the servant of it. And not just hate, any sin. If you allow a sin to dominate your life, you will become the slave to that sin. It will make the choices for you. 
It'll tell you what to spend your money on. It'll tell you where to go, what to do, what to worry about. It'll tell you what you don't want to do, too. Sin will tell you you don't want to go to church. Sin will tell you you don't want to read your Bible. Sin will tell you you don't want to pray. You don't want to love. You don't, you don't want to minister to people in a way that, that you know you can. So we need to remove that sin. And, and we know that if the only way to remove hate is for them to be freed by the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, for the Lord to come and set them free. Otherwise, it'll just keep going. It'll keep festering. Um, but verses 3 through 6, we also see the providence of God and how in verse 4, Paul said, you know what, I'm not going to, and I'm not Paul, but Festus said, I'm not going to bring Paul to you guys. And isn't that something that we don't know of a reason Festus would have said that? Because it would have been prudent to bring Paul to Jerusalem. If Festus didn't know that these Jews wanted to kill him and assassinate him on the way, why would he have declined? I mean, Paul was already in Caesarea. Well, you could say, well, that's the providence of God right there. I mean, you know, just he didn't have to have a reason. That's the way the Lord wanted it to be. And so in verse 6, he tarried with them. And in verse 7, and when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem. So the, the Jews didn't end up following him. They stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. In verse 8, here comes these three charges. While he answered for himself, while Paul answered for himself, he says, neither against the law of the Jews, there is that law that they said that he, he broke of the circumcision and things of that, neither against the temple, there's the sacrilege they accused him of, nor against Caesar, there's the sedition, the insurrection that they accused him of. Have I offended anything at all? You know, this is, like I said, the third time Paul is having to, to say this. You think he's getting tired of saying it. Verse 9, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judge of these things before me? Festus wanting and saying this is actually a more competent governor than Felix was because this was the correct way to treat this situation if you're a Roman governor. He's, he quickly figured out there are no, there's no evidence against Paul. Paul says, I've not done any of these things. Nope, nope, nope. Whatever they're saying, I've not done. And so Festus is saying, well, you know what? I, they're obviously, we're not going to get anywhere with this. So Festus says, well, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem and figure this out. But we see that in verse 10... Paul's answer. Then said Paul, um, yeah, then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them 
I appeal unto Caesar's. So he is basically responding back to Festus. I'm, I'm a Roman citizen, and you find no fault in me, nor have I offended the Jews, but there's no solution, is there? Paul doesn't want to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, he's not going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem if he's not assassinated on the way there. So there's really nothing else Paul could do. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't want to be let go because he will be killed. Um, now the appeal, though, in verse 11, he says, I appeal unto Caesar. Do you know who the Caesar was at this time in 59 AD? was none other than Nero. Nero was a Caesar. And you would think, what? <laughs> Why would you do that? I think I would risk being assassinated than appeal and go up to Nero. Now, this is 59 AD. We will say a lot more about Nero uh, as we keep going. Be before we close out Acts, I'll say more about him and bring up some stories about Nero. But in 59 AD, Nero wasn't psychotic yet. He wasn't at the point of just being this delusional, crazy, uh, a conceited person. In 59, the, this exact same year is the year that he kills his mother. Okay? And he does a lot more worse than that. He ends up kicking his pregnant wife to death later on. But this year he just kills his mother. So it's not really that far-fetched of a thing, but... Paul knew, here's, here's a couple things, Paul knew he was going to go to Rome because Jesus had promised Paul, do you remember? You had been a good testimony to me, and, but you shall testify me of, in Rome. So Paul knew he was going to go to Rome. He knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And by appealing to Caesar, he gets now a trip to Rome on their dime, on Rome's dime, all, all uh, expenses paid. Now, and he's guarded as he goes to Rome. Um, then we see Festus say, in verse 12, when he conferred with the council, he says, unto Caesar shalt thou go. It was the right of every Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. Every right. So, a couple more lessons that we see here. I mean, we've been talking about the sovereign will of God and the providence of God who is, I mean, if you reread this and think about this, if you step back and think about just these, these years that Paul has just been in one kind of circus trial after another and the things that just strangely have happened, that it's all been guided by the hand and the providence of God in human affairs. There's no accidents. It, it's not an accident that he got an incompetent Felix who kept Paul there two years. You know, and like I said, Paul could have... Um, you don't see Paul breaking a sweat, do you? Because he knows he's where God wants him to be. And if he's not where God wants him to be, he would be somewhere else. So there's no breaking a sweat trying to get out of this situation. Which leads to the fourth thing that we see is the submission of Paul to government. Now, if you're with us in Romans chapter 13, we're going to be looking at this more. But when, he, when Paul wrote to the letter to Rome, to Romans, 
He was in Corinth. Remember, this was uh, the third missionary journey. And Paul wrote this years before this happened. He wrote it, and now he's getting ready to live it. But it says in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Here's the example we see of Paul. That we are to be the most peaceful citizens that any government has. That we're to be submissive. As long as they do not break the laws of God, that we are to keep the laws of man. That we are to keep the laws of the government. Now, a, a, another thing that, you know, that we think about, any God-fearing, safe person can see everything that was wrong with the people who stormed the Capitol. That was just, that was just awful. It was bad. The people that stormed the Capitol and caused crime and did this and this uproar and, and all of the injuries and the violence and things like that, that is not how you are submissive to government. Because who, it, it, is that a testimony? First and foremost, ask yourself that question before you do anything. Am I being a testimony? Am I pointing others to Christ? You know, despite there being corruption in government, we know that there's corruption in government. We know as God's people that the policies which Trump had were very favorable towards us, and, and we love the, the policies that, that Trump had. But, and then the election, who knows if it was, it was robbed? You may have your own opinions about that, and I'm not gonna, I don't get political on purpose, because that's not what I was called to do. Um, but storming the Capitol, causing violence, causing damage, just acting like in any kind of riot is not becoming a Christian. Here's Paul, he's just sitting there. I mean, wouldn't you be upset two years, there's no verdict? You're just sitting there? And if, you know, and the thing is, is in Paul's mind, he could be sitting there, you know, I could be witnessing, I could be doing this, instead I'm just here. I'm not being used. And how many times are you tempted to believe that it's up to you to get you out of it? That, you, okay, I, I cannot be peaceful as long as I'm here. It's the Lord's will for you to be where you are. Now the Lord, He'll move your heart if He wants you to move and He won't let up until you do. <laughs> so we see a very peaceful Paul. Um, here, especially in the next chapter when he stands again before the trial with Agrippa and he turns these opportunities into an opportunity to spread the gospel. But look at verse 13. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. Now I want to talk about Agrippa and Bernice. Now this is King Herod Agrippa II. Now he is the son of King Herod Agrippa I. King Herod Agrippa I was the Herod that we had seen in Acts that had beheaded James and was looking to behead Peter because it pleased the Jews. But um, we also see that this is the, the same king 
that had stood in the crowd and he either had silver or gold or, or something and he stood there and uh, he had this great oratory and God struck him right there dead because he failed to give glory to God. And the, the people said, he's like the voice of a God and they were worshiping uh, Herod and this and that and God struck him and you know he had worms that God is struggling with worms. Now, um, Herod Agrippa II's great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was the one who had beheaded John the Baptist and who Jesus had stood before. And his great-grandfather was Herod the Great, which is the one who had all the babies in Bethlehem killed uh, when the Magi had come to him. Now, by this time, the power that was given to the Herods had dwindled. This King Herod Agrippa II is the last of all the Herods. You will not read of another Herod after him, you, and through the Bible, through history. Uh, he is the last one. And um, he is also the one that the Romans considered to be kind of the resident expert of all things Jewish customs, Jewish laws. Now the Herods were kind of a mix. They were a mix between the Edomites and Israel and Jews. Uh, the Herods were Jewish. And Rome set them up as to be kings of these provinces. Now Herod Agrippa II, this Herod's power had dwindled. I mean he's just, he, now he's, his dad was the king of Judea but he's not the king of that vast uh, area anymore. This Agrippa is only in charge of like the northern part of Israel and then all things related to the temple. But they have a history of knowing what the Jews believe, the customs of the Jews, and if you remember, um, uh, forgot Felix's wife, uh, Drusilla, you remember how Drusilla wanted to hear Paul in the, the previous chapter? Drusilla was one of the sisters of King Agrippa II. He had three sisters, Bernice, Miriam, and Drusilla. Now, in verse 13, whenever you see Agrippa, it's usually with Bernice. Bernice is his sister. Now, here's what Agrippa II is known for. He's known for his scandal, that his sister was also his mistress. And so this was an incestuous relationship. And the Jews, according to Leviticus, that, you, you did not commit incest. And it was a rumor. You know? Now, this Bernice, she kind of came in and out of the picture. Actually, she ends up, uh, she kind of goes to a man, leaves the man, comes back to her brother. Leaves his brother, leaves her brother, goes to another man, comes back to her brother. And uh, it's interesting how Luke includes Bernice. And we're going to see her mentioned. Whenever you see Agrippa mentioned, it's always, and Bernice. <laughs> so what's interesting about Bernice is she later goes on to marry Titus, Caesar Titus. You know who Titus is. Titus is the one that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, not Nero. Uh, Nero, does, Nero burns Rome and blames the Christians, but he doesn't destroy 
Jerusalem. That's Titus. And so Bernice goes on to marry him. Okay, so in verse 13, so certain days King Agrippa and Bernice come to Caesarea to salute Festus. So here's the new governor. They're coming down in this official statesman role. And in when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's calls unto the king, there is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. And so uh, Festus goes on to tell King Herod, or King Herod, yeah, about the, about the thing in verse 16, uh, who he answered and the accusers, verse 17, uh, therefore, when they were come thither without delay on the morrow, it's at the judgment seat, verse 18, against, this is why I read it all at the beginning, so we could kind of skip over the, the, the narrative aspect of it, you understanding what it is, verse 18, against whom? When the accusers stood up, they brought none accusation of such things as I supposed. Festus thought they'd have a lot more. Well, the way that they were going on and on in Jerusalem about this Paul guy, we'd have figured that, why haven't we thrown the book at him yet? Well, why is he still locked up? But they, they had nothing in verse 18. Nothing. So in verse 19, uh, but he had questions against some of their own superstition. Remember, Festus is not a religious man. He's a Roman. Uh, their own superstition about, and one of those being Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Isn't it something that Paul's preaching the gospel? In his defense, it's the gospel. And even if, if he, Paul makes sure that where there's opposition, it's actually opportunity. Where there's opposition, there's an opportunity to preach the gospel. And when he's on trial... It's an opportunity to give his testimony. You know, and I was thinking about that earlier. You know, Paul's trials, those were literal trials. Now, picture yourself. You may never be in a situation where you're on trial for you teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who knows? You, you may. But don't we go through all kinds of other trials in our life? And don't, shouldn't we turn that trial into a testimony as Paul does he turns the trial into a testimony and so festus knows about paul's preaching he says he's talking about jesus and how he was buried and raised again the third day you know about paul arose verse 20 and because i doubted of such manner of questions i asked him whether he would go to jerusalem there to be judged but paul appealed to caesar in verse 21 augustus is this is caesar both are Nero. In verse 22, then Agrippa said unto Festus, I will also hear the man myself tomorrow, and he thou shalt hear him. Tomorrow thou shalt hear him. So verse 23. Verse 23 is one of the most lavish verses in the word of God. This pomp. So in verse 23, on the morrow, Agrippa was come, and Bernice, <laughs> with great pomp. Now, this word pomp is fantasia. Fantasia. And that means fantasy. That the children that would dress up into clothes and just pretend and just uh, have this fantasy, that was pomp. That was when they would pretend to be something. Uh, it's a grand, showy pageant. It's a pageantry. And so Festus takes this opportunity to 
honor Agrippa, and Agrippa's all dressed right to the nines, and you know Bernice is all in her purple, and all of the, the royal garb, and all of this entourage that came with, with Festus in uh, verse 23, the chief captains, the principal men of the city, at, and then verse, uh, at the end of verse 23, what is Festus commands Paul to come up. And what a contrast. Here is Paul the prisoner, the man of God, standing in front of Herod Agrippa II with all this pomp and pageantry. I think it ran in the blood. Remember what happened to uh, his dad, King Agrippa? Remember what he just said. He had stood there and he had all these mirrors, you know, and he was the voice of God and God struck him dead. They loved the pomp. They loved the attention. But here they are eye to eye and couldn't be any more different. Verse 24, Festus gives this great introduction, honoring King Agrippa and all the men that were there in verse 24. And so he comes up with the, the problem. Festus has a problem, and he admits his problem. So verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa... And all men which are here present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I had determined to send him. Now here's the problem. Of whom I have no certain thing to write <laughs> unto my Lord. Unto, what am I going to write? Wherefore, I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a, a prisoner, and not withal to signify the, the crimes laid against him. So do you see Festus' problem? That, okay, Paul, you appealed to Caesar, you appealed to Nero, but I've got to send a letter. Remember, Lysias had to send a letter to Felix when he was transferring Paul. I've got to send this letter, but I've got nothing. There's no accusations against him. What are you going to do, Agrippa? What do you suggest I do, Agrippa? But we see that, in closing, this is not a predicament for Paul. Now, coming up in verse 26, this is Paul's fourth trial fourth for the same thing in two years this is his fourth trial we we saw him in front of Lysias and in front of the Sanhedrin in front of Lysias then Felix then Festus and now he's getting ready to give his testimony to Agrippa you know and it's another example as we read this yeah we're, we're mainly reading historical narrative we are we're reading history and then we're seeing God working behind the scenes. But we're also seeing how God has given Paul the peace. He's equipped him to, don't sweat this. The Lord has this. He knows he's going to go to Rome. The Lord's already, Jesus already told him that he's going to go to Rome. And this was, he's like, oh, okay, the Lord worked that out. But yet we see Paul is courageous. Through all these trials, he's not begging at the feet of the court to have mercy on him. What did Paul do? 
He says, if I've done anything worthy of death, I'm not afraid to die. I will die. If you find anything that's worthy of me being executed, I'll, I'll, I will die. So Paul is not worried about his fate. The third trial. He's not thinking, well, okay, all right, this is my fourth one coming up. Now's, now's my chance. Now's my chance to free myself. <laughs> That's not the Paul we read in the Philippian jail, is it? Who stayed and when his chains fell off. And No, he trusted the Lord. He, trusted, he saw the hand of God in his life. Nothing was done on accident. But we see that Paul gives another powerful testimony to us. That Paul said this. He says, none of these things move me. Remember that? Neither I count my own life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, having preached the gospel of grace. That was Paul's desire. And, you know, oh, may the Lord also grant us the, the courage through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what it is. It's God had given Paul courage courage and if you remember that when he came to Paul and he told Paul not to be afraid be of good cheer and that's what that means be courageous be courageous and not only did the Lord tell Paul to be courageous I know the Holy Spirit enabled Paul to be courageous and oh that the Lord may bless us and and if that time ever comes, and even if we're not in the same situation as Paul, we're never in a predicament that we can't give a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. In any of our situations, the Lord grant us the courage to preach. Opposition is an opportunity. A trial, he used it as a testimony. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for your study. Thank you for the word, Father. Thank you for which we learned tonight. Lord, may you apply it in our hearts. May we leave this place with it on our mind and our hearts and just thinking, Father, about Paul, your servant here in this situation. Lord, how anything in life, Father, that we are right where you want us to be. Father, if there is anything where you would otherwise instruct us to go somewhere else, we know, Lord, that you will leave in uh, be with us and guide us and, and give us the heart. Father, we do pray for those who are sick and who cannot make it tonight. Lord, those who are in pain tonight, we pray for them and that you'll bring them comfort according to your will. Father, those who are, are still in grief of heart, Father, we know, Lord, that you are a God that comforts the hearts, especially the saints of those who are cast down. Father, we know that you lift up. Father, I pray that you be with each heart here as we leave this place, that we go out and we exalt Christ in our bodies. Father, may, may we pray for one another, love one another. Lord, until we meet back again on Sunday, we give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.